Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Now, in this episode, we're beginning a new book. It's called The Search for Captain Slocum by Walter Magnus Teller, published 1956. Now, in the acknowledgements at the beginning of this book, which are a little dry for us to read, I would like to just point out that three of Captain Slocum's children were still alive at the time that this book was researched, and so the author had direct access to first-hand recollections of Captain Slocum and give us a unique insight. This book also looks at the question of what happened to Captain Slocum as he was lost at sea shortly after the publishing of one of the most famous sailing books ever, Sailing Alone Around the World. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, the Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Inscription. This is a world in which each of us, knowing his limitations, knowing the evils of superficiality and the terrors of fatigue, will have to cling to what is close to him, to what he knows, to what he can do, to his friends and his tradition and his love, lest he be dissolved in a universal confusion and know nothing and love nothing. J. Robert Oppenheimer, Prospects in the Arts and Sciences. Note to readers. The search for Captain Slocum began with a chance reading of his book and a chance discovery at Martha's Vineyard that people who knew him were still alive. For Joshua Slocum had disappeared at sea some forty years before, boat, logs, letters, papers, all going down with him. And one might even say that his time of world disappeared with him, too. Living on the edge of the 20th century, Slocum saw his beloved tall-masted sailing ships driven from the seas by the coming of steam. The world as he knew it was changing, but he, personally, would not convert to steam. He did not like it. It was not beautiful to him, like sail. Alone and how small in time and space, he shook his fist at progress and change. Alone he defied them, and in the end perhaps won a sort of victory. What Captain Slocum, 51 years old, brown-bearded and bold-headed did, was to sail around the world in a boat which he himself built out of a derelict hulk. He went without power, radio, money, advertising, sponsor or life insurance, and he went entirely alone, and he was the first to do so. Till the crack of doom, men will remember the voyage he made. For Slocum pitted himself, his own will and skill, against the universe in the time-honoured manner of all the sailors, from Columbus to Herzog. And he had the strength to live in accordance with his own beliefs, even when they ran counter to prevailing thought. These are the qualities that make a man worth searching for. Beyond all this, and when the voyage was done, he wrote a book, it must be among the finest ever written by a man who did not set out to be a writer. Van Wyck Brooks has described it as a nautical equivalent to Thoreau's account of his life in the hut at Walden. Slocum called it, quite simply, Sailing Alone Around the World. Sailing Alone Around the World has been translated into Polish, German, French and Dutch, and more than 50 years after publication is still in print in this country. However, in England, since World War II, new editions of Slocum have been selling by the tens of thousands. 
Perhaps it is not surprising that this 19th century mariner, who would not accept a world he could neither control nor love, should become a contemporary hero. Though Captain Slocum was the rarest of seabirds, an articulate Yankee sailor, there was much that he did not, could not, tell. The voyage, he wrote, was the natural outcome not only of my love of adventure, but of my lifelong experience. But what was the lifelong experience? What were the forces that shaped him? What made him do what he did? What made him able to do it? And how did the doing of it affect him? To try to find answers to these and similar questions, I decided to go looking for what clues might be left. Searching, I visited the house and farm, which had been Slocum's one and only home on land. I talked with his widow, then in her ninetieth year. I held the hand that had held the captain's. Then I saw a photograph of him. It was taken on the Massachusetts coast, six years before the end. Slocum is sitting on a homemade bench on his boat, his black felt hat just clearing the boom. He looks spare, flinty, fearless, and yet somehow afraid. It is summer and he ought to be on the vineyard farming, but of course he is not. I noticed that his two shoes were not laced the same way. That was funny. Who would lace one shoe one way and one the other? Slocum was a man so tied to a time and that time so gone that we can surely say he will never live again. His type, like the sailing ships he loved so stubbornly and well, has vanished from the earth forever. With the lapse of a few more years, the testimony of those who knew him will also be lost. One seeks him now in the drifting memories of old men and women, and in such scattered and fragmentary records as survive. Perhaps the search will, after all, throw some light on a man determined to be his own man, and, whatever the cost, to live the life he believed in. Walter Magnus Teller Chapter 1 As for myself, the wonderful sea charmed me from the first. I was born in a cold spot on coldest North Mountain on a cold February 20th, Joshua Slocum wrote. Chilling was the scene and sea-haunted. It overlooked the worn coast and tremendous ties of the Bay of Fundy. Fogs rolled in from the ocean ceaselessly. The year was 1844. In those days, the maritime province of Nova Scotia was one of the shipbuilding centres of the world. It was a place dedicated to the sea and to the modes of life peculiar to seafaring men. It is nothing against the master mariner if the birthplace mentioned on his certificate be Nova Scotia, was how Slocum put it. Although Joshua's people, on both sides, were sailors, actually his father was a farmer, and it was on a farm that he spent his early years, even though within sight and sound of the bay. History had put him in this spot, and early John Slocum in Massachusetts had been a Quaker opposed to war. After the War of Independence, he was exiled along with thousands of others who could not take sides or who had taken what turned out to be the wrong side. But because his father and uncle had captain transports from Boston to Quebec for the Loyalists, John Slocum's exile was softened by a grant of land in Nova Scotia, 500 acres on a trap ridge in Wilmot Township, Annapolis County. There John's progeny lived, and there Joshua was born. 
Joshua as a small boy while working on the old clay farm which some calamity had made his father's could hear in the distance before him the roaring of the tides. At his back was the Annapolis River Valley. He could look down and see the tall spruce trees good for building ships. In the time between farm chores and meagre country schooling, he built a raft out of spruce fence rails, put a sail on it, and sallied forth across the mill pond. Whenever he could, he joined the neighbours fishing for cod and mackerel in the bay. From the start, he was obsessed with ships. It was a hard life, but it had flavour. The hearth of one's childhood was something to remember always. What good things came from those old fireplaces? Oh, those barley cakes and those buckwheat flapjacks. Oh, but the means of even this simple substance was not easy to come by. The family was large. Poor father, Joshua wrote long afterwards. What a load he carried and how he grubbed a living for us all out of the old clay farm and how I've seen him break down when he came back to the family altar after the season of laying it aside, though never far out of sight, and cry, Father, Father. When Joshua was eight, the family left the homestead, held so long by the Slocums, and never returned. They moved down country to the little village of Westport on Briar Island. Briar Island is tiny, only four miles long, a piece of land flung into the Atlantic, on one side roar the waters of the Bay of Fundy, whose tides rise and fall more than fifty feet. On the other, St Mary's Bay flows majestically by. The move was made for the most serious reasons, because John, the father, was not a successful farmer, and, as a relative put it, because of Sarah's dying condition. Joshua's mother, Sarah Jane Southern, was the daughter of the keeper of the South West Point Light at Westport, the light her father had kept faced the Atlantic and guarded the entrance of the Bay of Fundy. What a turbulent prospect most of the time. Sarah was ill. Too many children coming too closely. She was tired, worn out, and she wanted to go back to the village where she had been born, where she could be near her kin. And so they had gone. Like most women of her time and station, she has left little evidence of her existence. She stares mutely out of old photographs, all naturalness gone from her face, while she sits immobilised for the picture-taking. One searches for signs of her living, for evidence of the laughter, tears or anger she must have experienced, but there are only the unforgiving statistics. She was frail, the relatives said. Dear Sarah, so frail and the babies demanding so much care, a loving, gentle soul. She was eighteen when she married, John, Joshua's father, was 21, the record states. Then silence, except for the list, the familiar list, in the front of the family Bible. Sarah Jane, born 18th of November, 1834, died 5th of September, 1853. Elizabeth, born 7th of July, 1837. John Ingraham, born 28th of July, 1839, died 10th of October, 1844. Georgiana, born 5th of September, 1841. Joshua, born 20th of February, 1844. Margaret, born 11th of August, 1846. Ornan, born 10th of June, 1849. Alice, born 26th of May, 1851. Henrietta, born 26th of April, 1854. Ingram, Bill, born 6th of November, 1856. Ella, 
born 5th of February, 1860. Joshua was the fifth child, and he could not have had much mothering. A brother died the year he was born, a sister arrived two years later, three more years and another baby, and after that, another and another and another, until finally Ella, the eleventh child, was born. Sarah Jane died a week later. Then came the last record, so often the only news of a woman of that time having ever existed at all, the tombstone. To the memory of Sarah Jane, wife of John Slocum, died February 16th, 1860, being 46 years old. Joshua, even at the age of eight, was left a good deal on his own. I had already been afloat with other boys on the bay, with chances greatly in favour of being drowned, he wrote. This was hardly an overstatement. The Bay of Fundy is rightly dreaded by men in small boats. Its tide goes out suddenly, silently, leaving the ocean floor naked, only to come raging back in, full of fury and menace. Of course, Joshua, like all country boys and professional sailors of his time, did not swim. He never learned. Not being able to swim meant that he had no fear of the water. He understood the mystic bond between man and sea in a way that the swimmer, who really fights against it, does not know. He was fatalistic about it. He knew that the sea would claim him if it meant to, and in a sense, he was willing to accept death in it. So from the beginning, Joshua was not afraid, but was drawn to the sea. At Westport, John Slocum tried to support his family by making fishermen's leather boots. Josh, at ten, was taken out of school to help. He hated the work, and though he bent to the will of his father, he was still hearing rushing waters and watching the sailing ships go by. Father and son did not get along. The little business went badly. The break between them came over a trivial matter, as it usually does in such cases, but it was symbolic. Josh, now twelve, had been caught in the cellar, putting the finishing touches on a ship model which had taken him many furtive moments to make. His father burst in upon him in a fury, seized the precious work of art and hope, and dashed it on the ground, smashing yards and masts and utterly destroying the whole thing. The strange part of all this cruelty on the part of the elder Slocum was that it was never greatly resented by his son Josh, who rather regarded it as just exercise of parental authority. However, he regretted the smashing of the ship model more than he did the castigation. In after years, he used to tell his mates about it at the cabin table. They thought it was pretty rough. John Slocum was a big man, six feet tall, 200 pounds and muscular. He was not afraid of a cap full of wind, and he never took a back seat at a camp meeting or a good old-fashioned revival, his son recalled. A deacon of his church and much concerned with the devil, he preached a religion as bleak as the surrounding fog banks. I never cared much for the devil after I grew up and got away to sea. I myself do not care much for your long-faced, tyrannical Christian, Joshua wrote long after. When he was fourteen, Josh ran away, and for a short time was cook on a fishing schooner. But I was not long in the galley, he wrote, for the crew mutinied at the appearance of my first duff, and chucked me out before I had a chance to shine as a culinary artist. When he returned, the escapade cost him a thrashing. But that was something he could take as well as give. 
In Westport in those days, there was a bridge which divided the town socially as well as geographically. Joshua, according to his oldest son, was head of the faction of underdogs and at an early age was already a pretty fair pugilist. But like many men, once he got away, Joshua Slocum was proud of his father and of the tyranny he had endured. In his book he wrote, My father was the sort of man who, if wrecked on a desert island, could find his way home if he had a jackknife and could find a tree. But whatever Josh had inherited from his father, he did not look like him. Rather, he had the finely cut features and unusual eyes of the mother he never mentions. On the basis of the meagre facts, it is hard to say truthfully why he found it so difficult to speak of mother or wife. Somehow the circumstances of his childhood made him forever after virtually unable to mention women, especially those important to him. The increasingly irascible father was left with nine motherless chicks after his wife died. Josh was 16 and very soon he left Briar Island to go deep water for good. On his first voyage out, he shipped with a friend as a foremast hand on a deal droger bound for Dublin. Whenever he was free, he studied, practising with the sextant and teaching himself from a copy of J. W. Norrie's Epitome of Navigation, for he was a natural student whose lot it had been to spend almost no time at school. As a consequence, he never learned how to spell or punctuate. He had wasted no effort in trying out subjects not truly his. From the beginning, his interest ran narrow and deep. It was the sea that mattered, the sea, and again, the sea. From Dublin, Josh sailed to Liverpool, and from Liverpool to China via the Cape of Good Hope. He made the latter passage on the British ship Tanjore, and remembered it later without love. I may have been a little severe on Captain M of the old Tanjore, but it is my only revenge for years of broken health brought on by the captain, who talked through his nose, having us, his sailors, working the ice cargo in the cool of the mornings and evenings, and then aloft, or were still over the ship's side in the heat of the days, which in Hong Kong in the summer, as it was intensely hot, caused several of the crew to die. I could not stand it, but when I left the ship I sued and recovered three months' extra wages, and the crime for which the crew was so inhumanely worked was that each had the high wages of our home port, $50 per month. In sailing alone, he remembers Captain Martin as a first-rate navigator, but an officer so imperious and brass-bound that he could not hand ordinary seaman Slocum a letter, but gave it to the first mate, the first mate gave it to the second mate, and he laid it mitchingly on the capstan head where I could get at it. From Hong Kong, the Tanjore sailed to Batavia, where young Josh was left in a hospital ashore, down with fever. It was not a soft life he had chosen, but he probably had not had a second's doubt about how he wanted to spend his life. He had made his choice, and made it early, and made it with conviction. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast and, of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.